Last week, we started our Christmas series called The Unsettling Solution to Just About Everything. It's a simple concept, but it's kind of unsettling when we apply it to our lives. We like it ourselves, but it's hard to give it to other people. It's about the meaning of Christmas and of Christianity, but it also deals with how we deal with the conflicts in our lives. And there's something that made Christ and made the early version of Christianity so attractive that people flocked to it. That something is what makes or makes people or should want make, make people want Christianity and Christ to be true, even though maybe you can't believe it's true. Not everybody believes Christianity is true, but there's something so great about it that you should want it to be true. And this something, it's not the fact that there's a God, because Almost every religion, not everyone, but almost every religion believes in something that's divine. And it's not about heaven or hell because most religions have something along that line. And it's not about how to be good because everybody can tell you how to be good. The thing that made Christianity so attractive then and should make it attractive now is this one word we started talking about last week. It is the word grace. Grace is this. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. You get caught, there's no excuse, there's no way out. At that moment, you're looking for something that you don't deserve. I gave you the example of me getting caught by a deputy in Northern Mississippi, you know, dead, just stupid wrong in what I had done, uh, but he gave me a little bit of grace. Grace is also this, number two, it's what we're hesitant to extend when confronted with the guilt of others. They hurt me, they hurt my wife, they hurt my child, they deserve to suffer. I don't want to see some pain in their lives because of what they did. When we are guilty and we're just stupid guilty and there's no way out of it, we want a little bit of grace. But when it comes to extending it to somebody else, we want to see them suffer a little bit. And so, and I said last week, I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be laws and rules or that people shouldn't be account held accountable for things, but I'm talking about uh, for us, those feelings of personal vengeance that we all have from time to time. And that's the tension that's involved in grace, and we're going to continue talking about that today. When we're on the receiving end of grace, it's, ah, man, you know, I didn't get the ticket. <laughs> you know, ah, I'm so glad, you know, that I don't have to pay the price. But when it's required of us, it's, it's disturbing. You know, I have to forgive. I have to treat this person with kindness. I have to want what's good for this purpose and for this person. And last week we defined grace this way. We said grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. And it particularly it comes from God. And I mentioned to you the word unearnable is, is not a real word. Uh, spell check will kick that out on you every time. It's just a made up word, but it expresses something. And think about this. There's a sense. This is an important consense. Uh, and maybe I didn't put this in there, or maybe it's mixed up, but there's a sense in which grace doesn't even exist until it is first experienced. <clears throat> grace is just a word until you feel it. There's no emotion around it. There's no story to tell until it's experienced because the experience of grace re requires a relationship. Where there is no relationship, there can be no transfer of the experience of grace. You know, it's kind of like this. You've heard this old thing. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Heard that, right? 
And of course, here's what's true. Uh, when a tree falls in the, in the forest, the vibration that creates sound happens. But if there's nobody there to hear it, it doesn't vibrate in your eardrum. And that's what sound is all about. And that's why God had to show up among us. And that's why God had to become one of us because grace doesn't really exist until it's experienced. We would never have known the grace of God without the presence of God on this earth. And that is what Christmas is all about. I said last week that grace is always about relationships. And when correctly applied, it's truly the unsettling solution for just about everything. And, and in the relationship where grace is expressed, there's always one who is above the other. And the one who is here, the one has, who has the moral authority or the one that has the badge on, you know, is right here and he can extend or he cannot extend grace to the other. So last week, we started with a statement by John, the youngest and the longest living of Jesus' original 12 followers. And John started his gospel by referring to Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word uh, who had existed from the beginning was existed in relationship with the Father. And he existed as God and he was the creator of the universe. And then John said this about the Word, the creator, the reason for everything. In John 1.14, John said, the Word became flesh and had his, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father and here is this statement that has meant so much to me over the last year or so, full of grace and truth. Perhaps the most amazing thing about Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. That means he was all grace and all truth all the time. Now, the best, when we were at our best, and we're not at our best often, but when we were at our best, the best we can do is to try to balance grace and truth. Jesus is all grace and all truth. He never said, yeah, that's okay. Uh, it doesn't matter that you committed that sin. He always said that's a sin. But then he died on the cross for us. Jesus, and see if this comes up, Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. I think we might've gotten the wrong graphics or something here, but let me just, here's a statement I want you to get. Jesus was all grace in all truth, all the time, but it wasn't his truth that was unsettling, it was his grace that was unsettling. And I wanna illustrate that again for you today. Uh, in the next, in the, the, the next part of the series, the final part of the series, we're gonna talk about how you and I can apply all the grace and all the truth all the time uh, of Jesus in our personal relationships. But for today, here's an illustration. One day, Jesus and his guys, his entourage, uh, the 12, and who knows if somebody else was there or not, went through the city of Jericho. Now, you've heard of Jericho before. If you've been around uh, church, you know, maybe you even sang Joshua at the Battle of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down, right? Jericho was a wealthy border city, a little south of the site of ancient Jericho. The, the, the Jericho of Jesus' day was not exactly where the ancient Jericho was, about 17 miles northeast of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho was one of the wealthiest cities of ancient Palestine. Herod the Great, you remember him? He was the guy who was king of the Jews when Jesus was born. Herod the Great built much of the New Testament city as a winter residence, and that's where he died 
in 4 BC. Nearby are the traditional sites where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and where he was tempted in the mountains. And in his gospel, uh, which is his biography of Jesus, Luke gives this account of Jesus passing through the city of Jericho. Now remember, one thing I always like to, to, to remember about Luke, because I have a couple of degrees in history, and I, I like the way that Luke begins his gospel because he says that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He looked at all the evidence before he wrote his gospel. And because he approaches it more from the point of view of a historian, Luke includes a lot of details. He includes medical terms, a lot of stuff like that that's not in the other gospels. And it's interesting that Paul the apostle knew Luke, and Paul called Luke, uh, Luke our dear friend Luke, the doctor. Luke was a physician. So with that in mind, here's what Luke wrote, Luke 19, chap, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There's no indication that he was going to stop. Before he got into the city, he had healed this blind guy, by the way. Uh, but as he's passing through the city, uh, verse 2 says, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. How many of you have heard of Zacchaeus before? You know, uh, if you grew up in church, you could sing this crazy little song that we used to sing about the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree. But there was a man named Zacchaeus, and here's what Zacchaeus was. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy, a chief tax collector and a rich guy. The chief tax collectors, remember, a tax collector uh, was a guy that contracted with the Roman government to gather taxes from his own people, the Jews, and everybody hated the tax collector because uh, uh, they could make extra money by charging you extra, something that the Roman government did not require from you. The chief tax collector was the guy in an area who had the contract with the government and then hired guys under him. So he didn't do the work. He just got the contract, and he had all these guys working under him. He could have become rich without cheating, but he cheated anyway and made even more money. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Everyone who knew Zacchaeus hated him because of the way he made his living, because he made his living by taking advantage of his own people and supporting a foreign power. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. He'd never seen this guy. He'd heard about him. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he was the chief tax collector. He was really rich, and he was a short guy. So, verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming his way, that's kind of a ridiculously amusing thing. You got this rich guy, rich guy, and he's kind of short. And nobody cares. You know, they're giving him a hard time if they possibly can. They won't let him get through the crowd to see Jesus. So he just runs ahead and climbs up in this, in this tree. And there's a picture. By the way, I took that picture. Gene and I were in Jericho one day years ago. And they have, a, they have a sycamore fig tree downtown Jericho, which they put a fence around just for us Christian tourists to come through and take pictures of so they can make money off of us. But there's a, there's a picture. I mean, that's the kind of tree that it was, it's a, it's, a, it's a tree that had low, big, low-hanging limbs, a perfect climbing tree. So this very wealthy and powerful guy climbs up into this sycamore fig tree. Ficus sycamorus is the name of it, by the way, to get a better look. Perhaps 
uh, Zacchaeus was interested in Jesus because he had heard that Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in fact, uh, Matthew, was a, we talked about him last week, Matthew, one of the 12 that, that Jesus called, was a tax collector. And so there was already a tax collector in the group. Uh, in the beginning, he just seems to have been curious. You know, he just wanted to see who Jesus was. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot in front of this sycamore fig tree, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I must be a guest at your house today. Now, maybe when he first said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, the good citizens who were traveling along with Jesus thought, yeah, he's going to give Zach what he really deserves. Right now, he's going to bring him down where he should be. But then, then Jesus had to say, I must stay at your house today. Jesus, what are you thinking? We already have our token tax collector in the group here. We don't need to mess with this guy anymore. What are you thinking about? So he came down, verse six says, here's what, here's what Zacchaeus did. He came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly with joy. And verse seven says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner, mumbling, grumbling throughout the crowd. The word actually means many indignantly complaining. Oh, who does this guy think he is? We showed up early. We're the good people. We keep all the rules. And we're, all we wanted was a selfie with Jesus and our kids. And we haven't even been able to get close to him. We get nothing. But he's going home with Zacchaeus, the sinner. Zacchaeus gets to host him. Zacchaeus maybe gets to see a miracle. It's not right. It's not fair. It's upside down. In fact, it is unsettling. It's the unsettling solution to almost everything. It just doesn't seem right. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, now he'd had his confrontation. Notice what he says. Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. What? I mean, the poor people must have been shouting around the city of Jerusalem. This is a wealthy guy. Right here, right now, half of everything I have, I'm giving it away. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, that um, the, the, uh, the construction in the Greek language, you could say, since I have cheated people. You know? It's an admission that he had cheated people. But if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It costs Zach a lot here. It cost him, I mean, he gave up a lot of his wealth to follow Jesus. What it shows, his reaction showed that his encounter with Jesus had changed him. By the way, in the previous chapter, I'm not going to take time to read this, but in Luke chapter 18, Luke had given an account of this really rich guy who came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what good deed must I do in order to inherit the gift of eternal life? And, uh, and Jesus said, well, you know all the commandments. The guy said, yeah, I keep all the commandments. Jesus said, okay, well, give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And the guy said, nope, you know, not worth that to, to me. You know, eternal life, no, I'm not giving up everything I have. And, and Jesus made a statement to his followers, then he said, it's really hard for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. 
because he trusts in his wealth rather than trusting in me. Now, you don't have to give away everything. You have to go to heaven. That really doesn't have anything to do with it, but you have to put God first. It's what it's all about. And so Jesus had made that statement. He said, it's really hard, almost impossible for a rich guy to go to heaven. But what's impossible with people is very possible with God. And now there's this rich guy, right? There's a super rich guy and he gets saved and he's going to heaven. He's going to spend eternity with Jesus. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. In verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' words did not imply that the act of giving to the poor had saved Zacchaeus. But the, the fact that his change in lifestyle was evidence that he had a real relationship with God. Because if you have a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it changes you. Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham by birth. A Jewish guy who, who was taking advantage of his people, had the right to enter the kingdom because of his connection with Jesus. That was Jesus's mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, that whole ordeal was unsettling. It bothered the people who were there. They muttered about it. They complained about it. Because they didn't understand the nature of God's kingdom. And we don't either a lot of times. So over and over, in the New Testament, Jesus told these stories. We call them parables. They're fictitious stories with a spiritual meaning to teach us. And, and he said things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like this. And so the last thing we're going to do today, we're going to look at one of these parables. It's the parable of the equally paid workers. Now, by the way, when we read a parable, I think it's important to understand that when Jesus told a story, he wasn't trying to make 10 points trying to teach one truth per story, one truth per story. Sometimes we, we try to make every little detail of a parable have a spiritual application. And we get ourselves in, in trouble. But he's trying to make one truth. And usually in a parable, there's somebody that represents God and there's somebody that represents us or the people who are listening to the story. So the parable that we'll close with today probably was meant to teach the Jews that non-Jews or Gentiles were accepted into the kingdom of God equally with them. The Jews thought because they had been God's people for so long and they were privileged that uh, they had the special spot in the kingdom. And Jesus said, nope, that's not the way it is. But the parable, I think, also shows that God's grace is given equally to all who trust in him. Interestingly enough, by the way, we're going to read Matthew's account of this, Matthew chapter 20. But uh, this account, this, this parable that he tells in Matthew chapter 20, follows fairly closely behind that same story about the wealthy young guy, you know, who, uh, who came to Jesus and, and said, what good deed can I do to inherit? Uh, and he went away sad because he had a lot, a lot, a lot of money. The more you got, more harder it is to turn loose of it. If you don't have anything, it's easy to want to be equal with everybody, right? I'll give it away. I, I don't have enough to buy a meal anyway. But here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, it's very common uh, that, uh, that unemployed workers would gather together in the marketplace. 
places like that in our, now, you know, we have institutions for that now, but I can remember, I can remember as a kid that there were spots where, where day laborers would gather and somebody would pull up in a pickup truck. Did you ever experience anything like this? The guy would pull up in the pickup truck and he'd just hold out five and the first five guys that would get there would hop on the back of the truck and he'd take them and they would work for him that day and he would pay them at the end of the day. So stuff like this has happened in, in, in our society in re relatively recent history. So he went and he got these guys. He said, I'll pay a denarius for the day. That was a standard day's wages. And they probably started working about sunup about six o'clock in the morning. Verse three, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So verse four, he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. Now you got, you got a three hour late start. I just promised to pay you whatever's right. They didn't expect a denarius because that was a whole day's work, right? So maybe three quarters of a denarius. So verse five, they went. He went out again about noon. So that were six hours into the day. And about three in the afternoon did the same thing. So he must have said, I'll pay you whatever is right. So some of them worked for six hours and some of them worked for three hours. And about five in the afternoon, only one hour left in the workday, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Verse seven, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, one, Jesus is a master storyteller. And one of the things that he does is that he always takes uh, things to the extreme to make a point, right? Now, would anybody actually go hire somebody with only one day? I mean, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, you quit at six, you gotta get to the vineyard. You might only work 40 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. Uh, so these last, this last group might've worked for less than an hour. Verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. And so verse nine, the workers who were hired about five, one hour left in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Work one hour out of 12, right? One hour out of 12. Uh, so if you were gonna be paid $10 an hour, uh, 120 for the whole day, you only expected to get a 10 and you got 120 bucks. Maybe let's get out of here quick, you know, while, while we still have the money in our, in our hands. We can assume they were surprised by much more than they expected. Verse 10, so when those came who were first hired, the guy, they'd been working all day, 12 hours. They expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. Now, I know how I would have reacted in the situation if I had worked all day long. I wouldn't have liked it very much. And people, wherever you work, if they find out somebody making more money than they're making, they don't like it very much, right? I mean, we would all be with these guys and we wouldn't like it very much that somebody got paid more, especially for doing less. So verse 11 says, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And here's what they said, verse 12. These who were hired last worked only one hour they said, and you have made them equal with us. They're not equal. We worked all day and the sun was shining. We worked hard. They're not equal with us. You have made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. 
and every person in this room would feel exactly the same way as these guys right here, every single one of us. How can you give them the spiritual eyes now? How can you give them the same right to the kingdom that you give us? How can you give them the same right to heaven that you give us? I've been serving you since I was a child. I could quote all the books of the Bible when I was six years old. I could beat everybody. You, did, you ever do it? You know what a sword drill is? Anybody ever do a sword drill? You take your Bible and you close it, and the, yeah, yeah, you're grinning. You know exactly what I'm talking about. See, grew up in a pastor home. And, and somebody would say, 1 Kings 18, 12. And you flip through, and whoever got it first raised their hand. I could wipe them out, buddy. Nobody could stay with me uh, in a Bible drill. I never drifted off into drugs or alcohol or illicit sex. How could you, how could you let these other people in the kingdom just like me? How could you make them equal with me? Now, I'm not saying there's not reward, by the way, because there are. But when it comes to entering the kingdom, it was unsettling. It's unsettling to the guys that had been working all day. But it was exciting for the guys that only worked for one hour, right? But verse 13, he answered one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I paid you exactly what I said he was going to pay, and you agreed, and you were happy about it. Verse 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. You can give me anything, buddy. I worked 12 hours for what I, got, I have. Yeah, but I gave you the ability to work, and I gave you the opportunity to work. And by the way, if we're spiritualizing and God will reward you eternally for everything you do after you trust him. But when it comes to entering the kingdom, everybody is the same. Here's the real problem. This is what Jesus is trying to get to, the real problem of attitude in the kingdom. Verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am, well, not me. You know, I'm, I'm happy for whatever anybody gets. You know, as long as I got more, right? Are you envious because I am generous? Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Whoever tries to make it, everything about themselves and their accomplished goes to the end of the line. All who trust Jesus and serve others go to the front of the line. In the parable, no one was underpaid it's just that some were treated with unreasonable generosity or what we're going to call unsettling generosity, right? Some were treated with unsettling generosity, and that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. God's grace is not limited by our ideas of fairness. His gifts go far beyond anything that any of us deserve. We have these ideas, I deserve this, this is right, this is wrong. But God's gifts really go far beyond anything that we can imagine. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember, that's another story that Jesus told. Uh, it's really the story of two sons because this guy had two sons, and one of them says, give me my inheritance, and he went off and wasted it all. Meanwhile, the older brother stayed home and did everything exactly like he was supposed to do. And then the younger brother, the prodigal, comes back, and daddy throws a great big party for him because he's back and the older brother won't even go into the party because he said, I stuck with you the whole time and you're giving him a party. 
And that's the way we tend to be. We find it hard to abandon our human scale of values, especially when we start comparing ourselves to other people. And we find it hard to accept the large-heartedness of God towards those who are, that we regard as undeserving. And that's the way these guys felt. Now, two, two questions, and then we're almost finished. First question is this. Will you step into a system where the undeserving get exactly what they don't deserve? That's the way God is. You know, he gives the undeserving. He said, he says, all who will trust in me, I don't care what their background is like. I don't care what the, where they came from. I don't care what they've done. I don't care what point it is in their life. All who trust in me, I give the gift of eternal life. Are you ready to make that step? And here's the second thing, second question. Would you be willing to extend to others exactly what they don't deserve because our Heavenly Father has extended to you exactly what you don't deserve? Are you willing? Are you willing? Uh, none of us deserves to go to heaven. But all of us who have called on Jesus will. Will you take that and will you be willing to give that to others? We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But here's what Jesus said on question number one. Jesus said everybody's invited. Those that have regrets, those that have sin, those that have baggage, those that have a past, they're invited. And those arrogant people that look down their nose at those that have regrets and those that have baggage and those that have a past, they're invited too. Everyone is invited into the family of God and we all go through the same door and that door is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Become a part of God's family is all about trusting in Jesus. It's about trusting him because of what he did for us when he died for our sins on the cross. Uh, trusting him that it will make us right no matter how wrong we have been. Everyone is invited and all who come are accepted. So you might say, how did I do that? Well, you realize that, that you've messed up. You know, you're not making it on your own. And that Jesus died to make you right with God. You know, as long as we say, I deserve it, I deserve it, I deserve it, we don't. And then you pray to God confessing your sin and expressing your faith in God for what Jesus did for you. It's not the words, exact words that you use, it's the condition of the heart. Uh, it's easy, but you can't fake it. There's no faking it. You, I'm easy to fool because I, I like to believe people. I, I, lo I like believing what every, anybody says to me, so I'm... I'm, I'm Gina tell you, I'm kind of naive. We, we balance each other out there, so she tells me what the real truth is a lot of times. But you can't fool God. It's easy, but you can't fake it. Will you step into a system where the undeserving get exactly what they don't deserve? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can't be all grace and all truth like Jesus was. We're, on, we, we can't even, we're not even as much grace and truth as we can be. Would you give us the grace, first of all, to step into your kingdom by realizing what our need is and by realizing what Jesus has done for us? And then would you, you give us the grace to treat others with grace? 
We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name.